Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. All right, let's do this. I haven't preached in five weeks, and I'm so pumped for today. I've been, been ready. We get to finish the book of Luke. We've been in this. This is our 64th sermon of the book of Luke, and we finish it today. And it's a cool, cool message today as we jump into this. Um, I'm feeling it this morning. Are you guys awake today? Hey, because I'm going to need your help. We had our college leader retreat this week. I was there all week, so I'm feeling young again. I'm feeling young, feeling fired up. I haven't looked in the mirror since then, but I'm feeling young, baby. I'm feeling young. Luke 24, verse 13 is where we're going to jump in today. Let me catch you up. For thousands of years... Israel has been waiting on their promised Messiah. Every generation that has come and gone has hoped that their generation would be the time that the Messiah would come, promised by God, and liberate his people. And when they viewed Messiah, we've talked about this, they think of a conquering warrior that will come, will kick Rome out, will restore Israel to on top, just like they were in the glory days of King David, will usher in this new kingdom where Israel reigns, over all of their enemies, and there's peace on the earth. That's what they believe Messiah was. And so as Jesus comes along, he comes and he does things that the Messiah was said that he would do. And he speaks words that Messiah was said, was said that he would speak. And, and the disciples start to think, okay, this is it. Here we go. And it, and it culminates of three years of him doing this work to they enter Jerusalem on the day of Passover, on Passover week, it would be equivalent to us entering in on the 4th of July, America, right? That's what they were about. And they're thinking, okay, here we go. Our Messiah has come into Jerusalem. He's going to confront Caesar. He's going to confront Rome. He's going to take over. Here we go. And it goes throughout that week. And then eventually some soldiers come to arrest him. And Peter takes out his sword. And he's like, all right, it's go time. And 12 hours later, their Messiah is dead. All hope lost. From going from here we go to gone. If you you played sports, this is the analogy. I thought of this. If you played on a good team where you're supposed to like win the conference or something, then you have a really bad team come along and they beat you. And you go to the locker room. There's that moment in the locker room afterwards where everyone's just sitting there like, what just happened? And that's what the, these disciples are feeling. And so Jesus has died. It's three days later. It's now Sunday And we pick up the story with a few of his disciples in verse 13 of Luke chapter 24. That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So they have left Jerusalem, which was where this whole thing went down, and they're walking a seven-mile journey to Emmaus. We don't know why. Are Are they from there? Do they have someone that lives there? But either way, here's what you need to know. They're leaving Jerusalem. And it is a journey of defeat for them. The hope was in Jerusalem. The hope was that Jesus would come and restore Israel. That didn't happen. They're defeated. They're leaving. 
And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And if you can imagine their conversation, and I always, as I read these stories, I always try to put myself in this. What would you be talking about? You're one of Jesus' disciples. We don't think these are the 12, one of the 12. Remember, Jesus had a bigger group of disciples. We think it's two of them. And they're talking about what just happened. And they're thinking, what went wrong? Like all these promises from the Old Testament. Like, when we're, is God even in control? Like, He was our hope. They're talking about these things. And while they were discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Okay, so this is Sunday. Jesus has risen from the dead. And these two are walking along the road, seven-mile journey to Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, this Jewish guy comes up beside them. Now, it says their eyes are kept from recognizing, meaning that the Spirit of God kept their eyes from seeing. That's Jesus resurrected. They just think he's a Jewish guy. Now, i got to love Jesus in this story because he has a sense of humor. This is good. If you just allow yourself to get in the story, this is such a good story. Verse 17, and he said to them, what are you talking about? Remember, they don't know who he is. What is the conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still. It stops them, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? Okay, picture this. Two men walking. Jesus comes up. What are you guys talking about? Dude, are you serious? Do, do you not know what went down? And Jesus like, no, no, I love it, so good. And he said to them, what things? And they said, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, gosh, a man who was a prophet, okay, a man who was a prophet, because obviously he's not the Messiah. A man who was a prophet, who was sent to us, right, from God, a man mighty indeed. He did a lot of really great things in word before God and all the people. But how our chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and they crucified him. Come on, stranger Jew guy that's walking with me. Don't, how could you not know this? Everyone knows this. It's three days ago. Verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. I want you to see the furthest thing from their mind right now is resurrection. It's not even on their radar. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now, cultural understanding, you got to understand this. Testimony of women in this day can't be trusted. Women can't appear in court even if they witness a murder because women's testimony can't be trusted. So some of the women, and we read this in other accounts of the Gospels, go to the tomb. 
Remember, Jesus shows up, some angels show up, and like, he's alive, and they go back screaming, like, he's alive. And the disciples are like, oh, women. That's what they do. So they were at the tomb, and they did not find his body. They came back saying he'd seen a vision, and he was alive, verse 24. And some of those who were with us, men, some of us men, went to check, because can't trust the women, to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Resurrection is not on their radar. They think that all of their hopes are lost, and not only was their hero crucified on a cross and died, but now some vandals have broken and desecrated his body, stolen it. I mean, it is the offense over the offense. I mean, it, all hope is gone. Did you catch verse 21? We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. The word redeem means to set the captives free. What is their version of Messiah? To be set free from Roman rule. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. See, their idea of redemption looked different than God's idea of redemption. When they heard the promise of the Old Testament, they saw a conquering Messiah, a conquering Savior, a King. When God envisioned Messiah coming, he saw a suffering servant. As they read their Old Testament, they saw glory. God saw Humility, serving, suffering. See, here's what they thought. They don't need, we don't, we don't need a servant. We need a warrior. We need a redeemer. But what they didn't know is they didn't need a conquering warrior. They needed a suffering savior. Why? They needed someone that could live the life they could not live. Perfection. And die the death that they deserved, the cross. But then be raised in a power that they did not possess, resurrection. Their idea of redemption was someone that would come and save them from what they were going through at the moment. God's idea was someone that would come and save them from what's going on in their heart. See, if you were a Jew in these days, you had some big enemies. Enemy number one is from the days of old Pharaoh, Egypt on the Nile. He enslaved your people. He treated them bitterly, but God came and he delivered the people out of Pharaoh's hand. But Pharaoh is enemy number one and you need a, you need a redeemer that will come and save you from people like Pharaoh. And now you're living in a day where Caesar is over Rome and he treats you evil and, and Caesar's the enemy and you need a conquering savior that will come and deliver you from Caesar. But here's what they did not know is they didn't need someone to come and save them from Caesar and Rome because Caesar was not the enemy. You know who the enemy was? Them. Their hearts. And the reality is, every single one of us become Caesar, become Pharaoh. Have you not? Have you not treated someone bitterly? Have you not cursed someone? Of course you have. 
You don't need someone to come and save you from who you think your enemy is. You need someone to come and save you from yourself. We thought he was the one to redeem Israel. I hope this stirs up in you some questions about what misconceptions do I have of God? What assumptions, what expectations do I have that may not be who he is? We thought he was the one. Verse 25. And he said to them, remember, they still don't know who he is. Oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. But remember, they believe what the prophets have spoken. Their version of what the prophets have spoken. Verse 26, he says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter to his glory? Not that the Christ should come into his glory and then make all of his enemies suffer. And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets. Now it says beginning with Moses. That's the book of Moses. It's the, five for, the first five books of the Old Testament. Jesus begins in the book of Genesis. And he starts doing a Bible study with them while they're walking. Interpreting to them the scriptures. And all the things concerning himself. Now I'm going to kind of skip that. Because he's going to do the same thing again. So he's walking with them. He's like what's going on? Well Jesus has been killed. And he's like oh foolish ones. Now that had to make him a little mad. And he start, as they're walking, seven miles, he just starts telling them stories from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all, all the prophets, Psalms. And he was showing to them the reality of what they were missing. And he's done it for three years. I mean, the whole time Jesus was with them, they kept thinking of a kingdom that was Israel on top. Jesus kept telling them, no, it's not that. It's actually an upside-down kingdom. Right? It's a kingdom. So think about, think about one of the stories. Uh, G- Jesus tells his disciples, you know, the Son of Man must suffer and, and die. And Peter goes, no, surely not, Jesus, not to you. Jesus says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. But they still didn't get it. It still never clicked with them. There, there's another time. The disciples are walking, and they're arguing. They're having a discussion about who's the greatest. Right, you guys read this story before? No, I'm the greatest. No, I am. Jesus lets them go. I love, I love Jesus. He's got a sense of humor. He lets them go. He gets to where they're going. Hey, guys, what were you talking about back there? Busted. Well, as a matter of fact, if you want to be great, you need to be least. If you want to be exalted, you need to be a servant. Another time, Jesus has two of the disciples come and say, hey, Jesus, when you enter in your kingdom in Jerusalem, can I sit at your right and him at your left? Can we reign with you? And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. Because if you want to be at my right and my left, that would be the two thieves on the cross. He kept telling them and they kept missing it. He said, hey, disciples, if you want to save your life, you got to lose it. But they only heard their version of who they thought Messiah was. And so with these two disciples, he just starts unpacking the reality of the scriptures. And, and if I can be honest, as, as I've walked through now 64 weeks of the book of Luke, the upside down kingdom presses against me. Anyone feel that? 
Nope, you guys are all on board with Jesus. Okay, you're good, you're good. Um, there are some tough parts for me, like generosity. I like to spend money on myself. But Jesus' kingdom flips that. Jesus will say things like, hey, there's a banquet. Don't try to have the seat of honor and be a, I love the seat of honor. Hey, when you have a, when you have a, a party, don't just invite your friends. Invite the poor, the outcasts. The, well, I like my friends. Anyone else? The upside-down kingdom of Jesus and why we took so long to walk through the book of Luke, it will press against us. And we all have to come to terms with our misconception of who we thought Jesus was and who we really want him to be even still and continually reorient ourselves to the Jesus that was the upside-down kingdom. And that's what Jesus does with him. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he, Jesus acted as if he were going further. <laughs> this, is so, this is such a weird story, but I love it. He acted as if they were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it's toward evening and the day is spent. So uh, picture this, seven mile journey. They're, what's going on? Oh, you haven't heard? And Jesus starts unpacking within the Bible. Seven miles. They get to the town they're at and Jesus is like, all right, guys, good to talk to you. I'm going to keep going. Oh, no, come on, come hang out with us. The hour is late. Jesus is like, well, okay, if you twist my arm, I'll do it, but you're going to buy dinner. But he's, it's such a weird story. So he went to stay with them. While he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished. <laughs> Put yourself there. Is this not a weird story? There's just some stories in the Bible that are just really, really weird. He's with them seven miles, talks with them the whole way. Stay with us. No, no, come on. Okay, fine. They're eating, talking. So where are you from? Come from. He takes the bread, breaks it. Jesus, <laughs> Gone. <laughs> What do you do with that? I don't know. How do you apply that to your life? <laughs> One thing you'll see with Jesus, and he does this, and just we're going to read it too. When he appears to his disciples, he eats and drinks with them, showing that he's flesh and blood. He's physical. But yet, there's also this like supernatural appearing and disappearing thing to show that he's not just physical. We'll get into that in a second. And they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened the scriptures? Now, did not our hearts burn within us? I don't know what they're talking. I've studied this a lot. Does that mean like we were angry at him as he was telling us all these things? Or does that mean like that stirred us up and it stirred our hearts to, I don't know. But they say like the whole time he was, we were with him, like our hearts were burning and they rose that same hour. Remember, they're seven miles from Jerusalem. And they rose that evening and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together in Jerusalem saying, and they came back saying, the Lord has risen indeed 
and has appeared to Simon. Verse 35, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So they leave where they are, go seven miles back, and they report, guys, you, you have no idea what just happened. We were walking, this dude came up and walking with us, started talking to us about the Bible, and all of a sudden we, we go to eat with him, and he's like, it's Jesus, and then he's gone. took seven miles for these two to be transformed from defeated to victorious. Seven miles. Verse 36. As they were talking about these things, this is the best part of the story. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened. Now, pause. This is where my version of Jesus I like, because my version of Jesus is a little bit ornery, kind of like me, and he likes to mess with people. Now, I don't know if this is the real Jesus. Just give me some fun for a second, okay? Here's what I picture. All the disciples, they're sitting around, they're talking about, oh my gosh, this has happened, this happened, this happened. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden Jesus disappears and they don't see him. He's like, peace to you. And they're like, ah, that's what I think happened. Anyone with me? Thank you, Teresa. So, one of my favorite things to do at work when I'm not working, which is a lot, is just to be a little honorary. And, and and have some fun. So Katie is on staff with us, and Katie's one of those that just, whatever she does, she is very, she brings everything to me. It's very intent, including like working on her computer, doing things like that. And so when she is on her computer working, she is in a zone, and there's no one else around. And one of my favorite things to do, and I do it quite often, is to come up behind her, and I don't really have to sneak up behind her because she's just so intent, but come up right behind her, and I'll go, hey, and she, ah, she just jumps every time. The other day, she was walking with her phone, and she was texting someone right up where you check your kids in upstairs. There's these pillars there. Well, I saw her come around the corner, so I just stopped behind one of the pillars and just waited there. And she comes around the corner. I was like, I didn't even say, hey. And she almost dropped her phone. I love it. That's what I see Jesus doing here. I, I don't know. You, you read Scripture how you want to read Scripture, but that's what I see. Okay, come back, Daniel. All right. And he says to them, peace to you, or however you say that. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Now, make sure you see this. They thought he was a spirit. Okay? And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that I myself, that's, that's me, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and blood as you see that I have. And when they had shown him his hands and his feet, and they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in front of them. So once again, Jesus appears suddenly, scares them. They think he's a spirit. They think they're hallucinating. So what does Jesus do? Look. Look at my wounds. Look at my scars. Hey, do you have a fish? And he eats it. And he shows them that he's flesh and blood, but yet he shows them that he's more than flesh and blood because he can appear and reappear. When you study the resurrection, there's some really stupid stuff out there. 
from people that would call themselves theologians. So, so one theory that some preachers say is, no, Jesus, because they, they want to deny the deity of Jesus, he was just a good moral teacher, they would say, well, Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He, was just, he just had lost a lot of blood, and his pulse became very faint, and he passed out, and Rome thought he was dead, and they put him in a tomb, and then you know, a few days later, he wakes up because his life had been kind of come back to, to life a little bit. And now he's with his disciples. And so that's how you explain the resurrection. Yeah, because Rome was really bad at killing people, weren't they? Like they made mistakes all the time on suffering and death and killing people. Seriously? And that's why Jesus vanishes and appears to show them, no, I didn't lose a little blood and then wake up. I died. Here's another theory on the resurrection that historians will use to try to say that he, he's not God. Well, the disciples, because they loved Jesus and walked in for three years, and because they witnessed this awful, brutal death, they, were, they had PTSD and were in trauma, and therefore they were hallucinating. And what they thought they saw Jesus was really just this manifestation of the PTSD and trauma. Now, did the disciples, now what we know scientifically, did the disciples have PTSD? Probably so. Did they have a, suffer a serious trauma? Yes. But that's why Jesus says, hey, touch my hands. And he eats with them. Because people you hallucinate with don't break bread. He does both, physical and spiritual. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, those first five books, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So again, this Holy Spirit, like, they understand, like it clicks with them. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day raise from the dead. And that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus in this room with all these disciples does the exact same thing he does with those guys on the road. He takes them to, the, to Genesis and just walking through the Old Testament begins to show them and reveal the mystery. I wish we had this Bible study. This would be a bestseller, Right? Was this a 10-minute conversation? Was this a 10-hour conversation? I don't know. But, but I can imagine Jesus saying, okay, guys, hey, it's me. Touch my hands. My Give me some fish. Okay, let's talk. You remember Genesis chapter 3 where man had fallen and the, and the serpent had caused Adam to sin? And remember how God said to the serpent, you will strike his heel? Like to Eve, you'll, you'll have a son. And to the serpent, you'll strike his heel. You know who that was talking about? Me? <laughs> Jesus, me? And you know how it goes on to say to the serpent, but he will crush your head? <laughs> yeah, that's me too. I just crushed Satan by resurrecting from the dead. And he goes on. Hey guys, remember Exodus when God comes to Abram and he makes him a promise and he says that all the nation will be blessed through Abram? Guess what, guys? That's me. That's me. And then he takes them to Egypt, to the Exodus story. 
And he tells them again the story of Moses delivering God's people out of slavery in Egypt. And he's like, hey guys, you, you know what? This is good, guys. Guess what? You know Moses? He represents me. I'm the new Moses that's come to deliver humanity out of slavery. And he goes on to Leviticus. Hey, guys, you remember that sacrificial system? Remember the Day of Atonement where they would take an animal and they would, they would cut its, its neck and it would bleed and that blood would be for the forgiveness of sins? Hey, guys, guess what? You know what that animal represents? Me. And he takes them to kings. Hey, guys, remember King David, your hero, and how he was this king that, that led and brought peace and prosperity to Israel and, and to the people? Guess what? Yeah, I represent him too. And he walks through the whole Old Testament, showing them that it all points to him. Here's what we believe at Hill City, if you're new. We believe the Bible is one unified story pointing to Jesus. That's what it is. Hill City kids are up there right now. Parents, your kids are up there right now learning stories from the Bible. But instead of just learning stories and saying, okay, that was a good Bible study, they're learning the stories and then seeing how Jesus, how it points to Jesus. So let me give you an example Growing up, I heard the story of David and Goliath. Anyone else? Yeah, David, David killed Goliath with the stone. And the message was, David killed Goliath, and you can conquer your giants too. Anyone heard that sermon? That ain't the sermon. Can I tell you what the sermon is? David killed Goliath. David was a picture of Jesus. Goliath was a picture of sin. And one day, a better David will come, and it will kill Goliath evil forever, period. That's what the story's about. Your kids are learning that right now. They're learning that every single story in the Old Testament points us to Jesus. And that's what Jesus unpacks for the disciples right here in front of them. Their eyes were opened. Before this, resurrection was not on their mind. It was nowhere on their mind. It was defeat. It was death. It was suffering on a cross. It was blood. But in this conversation, in this room where Jesus appears, appears to them, resurrection changes everything. It transforms these disciples. Once they realize Jesus has risen, everything changes. So Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote another book called Acts. It's volume two of the book of Luke. Look at the disciples in Luke. Read them all. Take, take two hours and read them together. Look at the disciples in Luke and then look at the disciples in Acts a month or two later, they are completely different people. The disciples in the book of Luke are all about power and control and we want to be on top. The disciples in the book of Acts are all about laying their life for the advancement of a kingdom of God that is spiritual, not physical. The resurrection changes everything. There's a man named Saul who grows up, probably a kid about the time all this is happening. And as he grows up, he hears about this guy, Jesus, and he's like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. A, a Messiah, Israel's Messiah dying on a cross? Are you, are you kidding me? That's stupid. So he starts killing Christians. I'm going to get rid of this whole thing because they are taking our scriptures, our Jewish scriptures, and perverting them to say that this Jesus... And then Jesus himself shows up to Saul and says, hey, by the way, it's me. I'm resurrected. And it changes everything. And he becomes the number one proponent of Christianity and spreads churches all around the world. Read the book of Acts. The resurrection changes everything. You know why Christianity spread so quickly? 
Resurrection. A group of transformed men and women. Here's what Peter will write about this transformation. This is 1 Peter, his work that he contributed to your Bible. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Scott talked about it all through our worship, that word hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. Now keep that scripture up there. Let's look at this. Before resurrection, the kingdom they had in mind was perishable. It was defiled and corrupt. And it was going to fade because theirs was the earthly kingdom. When resurrection, resurrection happens, they realize they got the wrong kingdom. This kingdom is imperishable. It's undefiled, and it's unfading. It's kept forever. It's awaiting for you. It is alive. Resurrection changes everything. Is anyone here this morning? Before resurrection, no hope. After resurrection, hope. Okay. I, for years, was guilty of Leaning too heavy on preaching only the cross. Now hear me. We preach the cross here, right? We preach that Jesus had to die for the sins of the world. That substitutionary atonement on the cross cross is our hope. That's part of the gospel, but that ain't the whole story. Because without that, we got a dead Messiah. Just like every other religion there is, there ain't no hope. It's dead. Here's what you get. Resurrection changes everything, and we have got to keep preaching resurrection. We don't just have a Jesus on a cross. We have a Jesus on a cross that died and then was raised conquering sin and death. That is our hope. So the cross bears the stain of death, your sin. That's the cross. When you look at the cross, we sing about the cross, you need to think your sin and blood poured out for you. But the resurrection proclaims life and beauty and glory and honor that's yours. We must be people of the cross, but we must be people of the resurrection because the resurrection is what changes everything. The cross bears the stains of death. The resurrection proclaims life. So for these disciples, before resurrection, the poor were a group that they hated. But after resurrection, they realized the poor were not a group to be exploited, but a group to be served. After resurrection, they learned that the sick and the lame were not cursed by God, but they were actually a group to be cared for. After resurrection, these disciples learned that Gentiles were not their enemies and that they need to hug them as brothers. After resurrection, these disciples learned that sinners were not cursed by God and need to be shamed, but they need to be embraced and loved. Resurrection changed everything for them. What about you? What about you? The cross bears the stains of death, your sin. It does. And you are broken. We've all messed up. That's the cross. But the resurrection proclaims your glory. And some of you are like, whoa, whoa, my glory? Yes. 
Jesus glorified, given to you, you are in him glorious. That's resurrection. We had our college retreat this week with our leaders. A bunch of our college students that are leaders, we got away. Two nights ago, we did this activity. I call it the river of life. And what I had them do is I, I gave them, we gave them a big poster board thing, and we had them tell the story of their life using a metaphor of a river. And so, you know, they would, they would kind of start, you know, this maybe in high school, this started going through stuff, and then there was a big turn in my life, like a river bend. And it was something that happened. Could be good, could be bad, but I didn't see it coming. And, and so they use this metaphor of a river, and maybe there's like these big stones in the river, and I crashed into some of these, and this stone was alcoholism, and this stone was a, the death of my mom. And like, that makes sense? Metaphor of a river. They spent 20 or 30 minutes kind of writing out, drawing out their stories. And then we had them in, in groups of guys and girls all mixed together, like five or six of them, and we, we sent them out to their groups, and we said, we want you to use this this drawing to tell your story. And I got to kind of walk around and listen, and I'd go down and I'd sit right in the middle of one of the groups just hear a story. And the stories I heard will melt to you the things that our kids have been through. Loss of parents, mom and dad not wanting them and kicking them out. Sexual abuse. Attempted suicide. Going to college and trying to find identity in alcohol and guys and girls and sex and like just the stories. Now, there are some cool stories of victory and good, but there is a, there's a ton of stories of shame and brokenness. Anyone with me here? We look at our stories. You know what that is? That's the cross. That's death. And I look at my past, like, I got stories of death. You do too. And then we got back together in a circle after they told their stories. And I mean, there's tears and there's, it was an emotional time. And I looked at this group of students and I said, guys, I heard your stories. And I heard stories of awful things you've been through I've never even experienced. And there are stories of death in your past. But there's something that happens with resurrection. That your stories of shame and death and brokenness and sickness and abuse, they don't get the final word because resurrection happens. And I challenge these students, I say, can you look at your stories of past? Can you look at your scars from the past? And can you bless them with resurrection? And he looked at me like I was a freak. Like, what are you talking about? So one of our, one of our guys says, so, so here's my story. I was in a home where my father was emotionally abusive. And the only emotion as a young man I was allowed to have was rage and anger because anything else was a sissy. And that's what I grew up in. And there's death in that. And he said, Dude, I, I've, spent, I've spent years living that out. That's the cross. That's death. But here's what he said resurrection looks like for him. That though that was my story, now because of resurrection, I am emotionally intelligent. I'm emotionally aware. I'm in touch with my emotions more than most other guys are. Because I've been through that, death, resurrection is, there's a goodness that's come out of that. And I challenge these students, can you look back at your stories and can you begin to claim resurrection 
over your past. If you can't, all you proclaim is the cross. That's all you proclaim. Brokenness, death. But if you begin to claim resurrection and you step over here, you proclaim the cross. Yes, I was broken. Yes, that. But resurrection. Can you do that? Because without resurrection, everything's meaningless. Because resurrection screams to us that my failures do not have the final word. Resurrection screams to us, though my body is sick, that does not have the final word. Resurrection screams to us, my divorce does not have to have the final word. Resurrection says, my shame does not have the final word because of resurrection. Can you claim that for yourself? Because when you do, watch out. Because you will join Paul when he says this about death and sickness and sin. Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? That is swallowed up in victory because of the resurrection. And you become a giant enemy to push back darkness and the gates of hell. When you can claim resurrection, Hill City Church, we must be people of the cross, but we must be people of the resurrection that claim new life. Let's pray together.